0: One Sacred Pause with Jessica Windrill. Hello, and welcome to the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm so excited for today's episode. But before we get in, a couple of announcements. Uh, we have opened up registration for our 2020 200 hour vinyasa and ayurveda yoga teacher training in oslo norway this starts in january it's a six month program and you will learn the nuts and bolts of how to teach a safe creative fun and inspiring vinyasa yoga class so if you are interested then please send us an email at hello at and we can get you more information so With that, let's talk about ethics. Yes, today's episode is uh, a little heavy, but it's also something that is really near and dear to my heart and I think uh, doesn't get talked about enough in the yoga community, even with the amount of scandals and all of the things that have been happening in the yoga industrial complex uh, the last two years in particular. Um, So I talk a lot about this in teacher training and uh, spend a lot of time thinking about it myself. And so I just realized, I'm like, why don't I do a whole podcast episode about this very topic? So today's episode, it's sort of geared towards newer teachers who maybe might not be aware of some of the Um, darker areas of being a yoga teacher, but it's also a great episode for all of us just as a reminder that, oh, okay, we can do better, not only personally, but also we can demand that the people around us do better, studio owners, other teachers, brands that we work with, anyone that we come into contact with. Um, This is really tricky because yoga is a spiritual tradition and so within the spiritual tradition, there are no regulatory uh, controls in place. Really choosing to act with integrity, choosing to act with ethics and morality is really self-regulating. So if somebody chooses not to do that and they want to cut corners or cheat the system or cheat other people, they can. Uh, and so I think that's really where so many of us have run into problems, and I Just think that there's so much more we can be doing. And when we start having these conversations in a more open and honest forum, I think that's what helps us kind of normalize holding the standard for ourselves and for one another. Uh, I think, unfortunately, when we talk about ethics and we talk about the intersection of money and spiritual practice, a lot of times, or power and spiritual practice, a lot of times it is kind of this like David and Goliath situation where um, we perhaps feel like we don't want to rock the boat when somebody else has all the power. We, as yoga teachers, we don't want to lose a job. We don't want to feel like we're not able to promote our, our offerings, our workshops, and our classes, or like we're getting stonewalled or blacklisted, And the gossip mill and the rumors that can fly around in the yoga community can be pretty unbelievable. And this can be really shocking to somebody who's new to teaching yoga or somebody who's new to this community. And for people who don't teach yoga, a lot of times their reaction is total shock. Like, wait, what? You mean yoga and teaching yoga isn't all butterflies and rainbows and puppies? Like, I would have thought a yogi would be so calm and collected and doing the right thing. And uh, unfortunately, the answer is no, it it isn't always that way. Of course, though, we do run across people who are ethic, ethical in the yoga community and wanting to operate at a high standard and wanting to be the change that they want to see in the world. And for me, for sure, this is something that's really important to me and I tried the best of my ability to act ethically. And there's so much to unpack here. Um, so many things that come up in this conversation. And it's about power. It's about trust. It's about vulnerability. It's about money. It's about insecurity. There are so many things that are at play here. So we have the ethics that comes into the conversation when we're talking about money and time and the exchange of energy, and then we have the ethics that comes into the conversation through power dynamics. If somebody is a teacher or a brand or a celebrity, how do you hold the boundary on what you think is important? So having this personal agency, and a lot of times those lines get really blurred in the yoga community. And if you are starting out as a yoga teacher, you might not know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate and be like, okay, well, maybe this is just the way it is. And it becomes very easy to downplay or deny or rationalize, uh, not just bad behavior, but inappropriate behavior from people around you. So we see this, all the time in every different tradition, every different lineage, there have been scandals and inappropriate oh, relationships and situations. We can talk about uh, Ashtanga Yoga, we can talk about Iyengar Yoga, we can talk about Anyusara Yoga, we can talk about Bikram Yoga, we can talk about Jiva Mukti Yoga, we can talk about Vinyasa Yoga. There Is always, when we're dealing with humanity, there's always room for error. And I think that the best way to approach this is through honesty and thinking for yourself, what's important? How do you think a yogi should act? How does a yogi show up in the world? And ethically, uh, we're really lucky. We have, in the yoga world, we have the eight limbs of yoga, that help guide us and help give us this blueprint for how to live our life. And we start with the yamas. Um, And this really helps us with non-harming, non-violence, telling the truth, right sexual action, uh, non-grasping, and um, non-stealing. Those aren't in order, but you get the gist. And from there, then, perhaps we can have sort of a touchstone or a true north for how uh, yogis should be acting appropriately and ethically. So I always, when I come to this, this conversation for myself or in teacher training, I'm always like, okay, well, here's the deal. First of all, I've never been in a position of a lot of authority or power. So it's hard for me to say what happens when somebody has that. How do they get corrupted? Because I imagine that everybody starts out wanting to be an example, wanting to be a leader, wanting to be trustworthy. And then somehow over time, they get a little corrupted uh, when they start to get more celebrity or more power or more money. And then all of a sudden, it might feel like the rules don't apply to them anymore. So I can see from a very like human uh, emotion standpoint how that could happen, However, I just don't have any experience with it. So it's, it's hard for me to gauge exactly when that might happen. And then here's the other thing that I always think about too. You guys, there are so many ethical yoga teachers, studio owners, and even like um, people in authority in the world. So it's not like every single person who gets power in yoga turns out to act unethically and harm their students or people around them. Like, that's certainly not the case. So I think it's really important to point that out, that, yeah, we have, a, we have many bad examples, uh, but I think there's also a lot of good examples. And so trying to find the hope and the positivity in a conversation that can sometimes feel not just heavy, but a little overwhelming, So when we come back to, all right, well, how how does this look like? Um, An ethical yoga teacher is somebody who's always wanting to be of service. They always hold themselves to the standard of, okay, how can I help my students rather than harm them? So we don't physically abuse our students. We don't hit them. We aren't punching them. We aren't kicking them. We aren't biting them. And you, some people listening might be like, oh, my gosh, this is so obvious. Why is she saying this? Well, um, it's not obvious to everyone in the yoga community. Iyengar is very well known for physically abusing his students. And uh, I have an aunt who studied with him in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. And, and she told me <laughs> she would always go to his students um, because they would always be just a little bit kinder than he was directly. We don't verbally abuse our students. So we don't call them names. We don't make fun of them. We don't gossip about them behind their back. We don't uh, create little clicks and, and exclusivity. And we certainly, I've had this happen in a few classes I've been in. One this spring, actually, in London, uh, where the teacher says something in class like, um, come on, you guys, can't you do better? This is a level 2-3 class. In my mind, that's kind of crossing a line because you don't have your student's best interest at heart. You're making them feel bad about themselves. And my intention personally is to never make a student feel wrong or less than, especially if they can't physically do something. Asana is a tool. It's not the end game. And so when those things get twisted and we get so attached to what does the physical practice look like? And when can I do handstand? And when can I do full splits? And when can I do X, Y, and Z? These quote unquote um, advanced postures. I think we're missing a little, well, a lot of the practice. And yes, there is a benefit, the tapas, the discipline to staying with the physical practice as a tool for progression and gauging our dedication to the practice. But when we get so attached that that becomes the goal, that becomes sort of the badge of honor, I think that's where the problem is. And so we don't verbally abuse our students. We don't sleep with our students or sexually abuse them. We, in the yoga shala or classroom, uh, a lot of people wear tight clothes. They're wearing skimpy clothes. It could be hot. We're doing a lot of binds and twists and movement and our clothing has to be functional. So we can see a lot of the physical form. And when we give hands-on adjustments or assists, there's like touch, contact, contact. And so as teachers, being absolutely clear with our intentions whenever we touch a student and making sure that our, our integrity would never be questioned. So we learn how to give really good hands-on assists. We learn how to manage energy when we give assists. We learn how to be really professional. So that if something were to happen, I've had this happen before. I was uh, adjusting a girl before in a twist, and her top was really slippery, and, and my hand slipped on accident and, and gently <laughs> touched the side of her boob. And you know, of course, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And she knew it was an accident. She'd been a student of mine for a long time. She knew that I, I gave really good hands-on adjustments that never, ever crossed a line. And she felt that my hand slipped. So it was OK. Sometimes things like that do happen. But um, we want our students to trust us. And trust is built up over time and over a pattern of behavior. So if your pattern of behavior as a teacher is always of like the highest integrity, then you're going to be fine. There's never really going to be a problem. Um, We don't lie to our students. We don't lie about our abilities as a teacher. We don't say, oh, yeah, I've done this training or I can teach that and then not actually have the background or the education or the tools to hold space for whatever that particular thing is that we're saying we can do. Um, And not getting so caught up in maybe what other teachers are doing in terms of the comparison game. Like, oh, okay, well, so and so at my studio, she always has 25 people in her class. I only have four. That's when jealousy creeps in. That's when insecurities come in. And that's when potential for really ugly behavior can come in. So for me, acting with integrity as a yoga teacher um, boils down to one very simple idea. And it's this idea, stay in your own lane take care of you and what you need to do and your vision and your goals and your development as a teacher. And when you are focused on what you are doing, regardless of what the people around you are doing, then you are pretty much walking the talk. And it's hard for you to feel bad about that and it's hard for other people perhaps to take advantage in some ways. So, That's kind of what an overview of acting ethically as a yoga teacher. You don't cut corners. You do the right thing even when nobody's watching. So maybe you're staying after class and you're cleaning up and you see that one of your students left like a really cool piece of jewelry. Because a lot of times students take their rings or necklace off and leave it to the side of the mat. And you're cleaning up and you're the last one at the studio, last class of the night. And you're like, oh, nobody's here. Nobody knows. I'll just take this necklace. And then the next day, the student comes back and is like, oh, has anybody found a necklace? And you say, no, no, I don't know where it went. We'll, we'll look for it. We'll keep an eye out. What's your phone number? <laughs> Knowing full well that you have the necklace and you're never going to give it to them. Uh, that happens. It happens often. So little examples like that add up to a pattern of behavior. So... How do you, as a yoga teacher or a meditation teacher or a spiritual guide, hold yourself accountable? Because no one else is. And so that's sort of a, a motivation that comes from the inside out. And, you know, we do see examples of people who get success or whatever that looks like, money, fame, jobs, who are unethical. And it can be a real downer. It can be really discouraging when you yourself are an ethical teacher. So my advice is in that situation, stay the course. Slow and steady wins the race. Uh, That's certainly my motto, and that's the way I look at it. Um, When my mind goes to the place of like, oh, why isn't my career something else, or why aren't I getting these jobs, or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay, Uh, come back to why do I teach yoga? I teach yoga to be of service to others. End of sentence. And as long as I feel like I'm able to be of service to others, then I'm doing my job. And so getting caught up in the tailspin or the spin out of these what-if conversations isn't very productive or helpful. So um, ethical (sighs) problems, conversations. um, I like to share this because I think it's really important For people in our community to have their eyes wide open to some of the things that can happen when other people aren't acting ethically, so that you are prepared, you can protect yourself, and perhaps don't get as blindsided as I've been, as some other teachers have been. And, you know, some of the things I want to share today are not just to put, and I'm not going to share names, but put studios or retreat centers or teachers on blast. Like it's not about calling people out. It's more about learning from past experiences and trying to find ways to protect ourselves moving forward and to be better negotiators when it comes to jobs or being able to choose collaborations and partnerships that are in integrity and are in alignment with your intentions rather than getting sucked in by these big, promises, and then being left holding the bag if things blow up and aren't working out well. Um, And once you've been in the yoga community for a while, you start to see this stuff. But if you're newer, then you might not be aware. So this is something I tell all of my new students in my teacher trainings, like, okay, this might be a shock, but this is actually to help you. And at the end of the day, you guys, if you're ever in a situation, business-wise, personally, with a student, with another teacher, with a studio owner, with somebody who's interviewing you for a job, if you feel gross, if you feel icky inside, if you feel like you're being used, if you feel like it's not a fair exchange, if you have a pit in your stomach, then you need to say something. So this is so scary and so difficult Because again, it comes back to that idea of like David and Goliath, like, okay, well, what if I stick up for myself and I lose my job? There are a hundred other yoga teachers lined up to take your job. And that's definitely the case in the States and not quite yet in Norway, but I imagine Norway will continue evolving um, as, as the yoga industry here continues to grow. But so then you feel this pressure of like, oh, okay, well, it's better to have a job and feel like I'm getting used than it is to not have a job at all. And that breaks my heart. I've been there. I know exactly what that feels like. And when I see other teachers in that position, I I get really angry. Actually, not at that not at that teacher, but I get angry at the situation, at the people who are creating that situation. And it's, it's the people with power. It's the people with money. And it's just super unfortunate. And I think this has gone on for so long and been perpetuated because nobody's saying anything, because nobody's sticking up and saying, hey, this isn't right. As a community, we have to do better. We have to change things. And I get it. It comes back down a lot of times to the bottom line. And to the idea that people in power usually don't want to just give up that power for the greater good. So, oh man, what do we do with that? Well, I don't know. I guess try to be smarter from the get-go. That's probably some of the only advice I have. Um, So some of the things I've learned along the way... um, gosh, I have a lot of examples. (laughs) Uh, I know one time I was working at a studio, I was managing a studio and, uh, I didn't really agree with the studio owner and in general how they ran the business, but I had the job and, um, then I, I quit the job when I didn't get paid and, um, just kind of let it linger for a little bit, not sure what to do. And then finally, I decided to file a claim with the Labor Commission. And I filed the claim and had all this documentation, all of our emails, and everything that had gone back and forth. And the studio owner saying no, they didn't owe me money because it was a sliding scale and the studio wasn't making money, so therefore they didn't owe me money. And I was like, um, I'm sorry, you still owe me at least a minimum wage. And anyway,s it took months to go through the the bureaucratic system. And uh, then I got an email one day, and it was from someone who had bought the studio from this other owner. And usually when you buy or sell businesses, you have to disclose all of your assets and your money and your profits, and then also any of your debits or your claims against you or, um, yeah, your debts. And this guy hadn't done that. And so The person who sent me the email happened to be a friend of mine, a colleague, somebody I knew in the yoga community. And I didn't even know that she was buying the business. And she sent me this email and she's like, oh my gosh, I just was going through all these papers in the office and I see that you filed this claim. I had no idea. Um, I see how much the claim is for. Unfortunately, we have no money. We just bought the studio. We can't pay you the full claim. So what do you think happened, guys? Well, what happened was I settled for some small, small amount. So in the end of the day, I was the one who lost out. And I'd spend all the time with the paperwork and a lot of stuff. So that can really not be fun when you know that you've earned something and you're not getting paid. Uh, I had an example. I was supposed to go to a different country and uh, run a teacher training. And everything was set. There were some a couple people signed up, not that many and it was up to the retreat center to be marketing and, and getting people signed up and all that stuff. And um, then I found out I had cancer and I was about to start my treatment. And so I emailed the retreat center and said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I cannot be there. We have This is a really crazy circumstance. I'm starting my treatment in a few weeks and I won't be there. And the studio owner or the retreat center owner went crazy. And she was just like, I don't know what you're thinking. You're so unprofessional and this and that, and you need to pay for the training. You owe me the money. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I woke up one morning after having a second surgery and you know, you're know, you not feeling so hot. And there's so much uncertainty at the very beginning of cancer treatment. And I'm dealing with all of this. And the, the woman had sent an email to everybody who was registered saying, the training is canceled because Jessica Windrell is unprofessional and contact her directly to get your deposit refunded. That was it. So I woke up that morning and I had a, like all of these nasty emails and Facebook messages from people who had been signed up for the training. Like, oh my God, why are you doing this? I've rearranged my whole schedule to be there for a month and I have taken time off of work and I've you know, got my Airbnb sorted and I've bought my airfare tickets and like, you know, what's the problem? You just didn't want to come. And so I I spent a lot of time <laughs> while on my pain meds, um, emailing everybody individually saying, I'm so sorry. Like, I want to be there. Here's the situation. I just got diagnosed with a really rare and aggressive cancer. Um, a lot of things are unknown. I start treatment. I will not be able to be there for that reason oh, and by the way, I never collected any money. It was the retreat center that collected the deposit. So you need to get the deposit from them. Like, I have no money that I ever took from anyone. So that was interesting. Um, And honestly, that's why I haven't really been uh, that interested in trying to do teacher trainings abroad, because I've been burned. And it's... um, leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. And the fact that people resort to name-calling and, um, you know, and, and I, in that circumstance, I even went above and beyond. I actually, last minute, found a substitute teacher who could go and teach the whole thing. And when I let the resort person know that, she was, she was like, no, that's not, good enough. And she had previously agreed to it. And then she came back and she's like, no, that's not good enough. And I think honestly, she was using that as an excuse because there weren't that many people registered. And so she was going to lose money by running a month-long retreat with only, you know, six or seven people. Anyways, um, we want to believe the best in people. I always want to believe the best in people. And I think this is where sometimes we get hurt because we set this expectation of, okay, well, I'm Entering into a new partnership or collaboration or job or whatever it is with the highest intention. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to show up 100%. I'm going to be totally present and available. And then we start to expect that that's how other people are showing up also. And that's not usually the case. So it really is a bummer, but we have to almost like readjust our expectations to, okay, uh, this is how I'm going to show up. And I'll just be really cautious and kind of see the cues that I'm getting from the other person. What are their emails like? What are they like in person? And what are their actions saying? And it's very, very easy, you guys, for yoga people in particular, to tell a good story. Oh, it's going to be amazing. And yeah, I can't wait. We'll have packed classes. We'll open this awesome studio. We'll run this teacher training. We'll have pack-out retreats, like, to sell this story, to get you excited and involved and doing all this extra work. And and it's it's not a bad thing to be excited about things. Like, you should be. But be cautious. Don't put everything in all at once, Um, especially if it's somebody who you're not really sure of and you're not sure if you can trust them yet. And, you know, we see this all the time, too, with um, yoga studios when Two people, two friends are like, oh, it'll be amazing. We'll open a studio together. It's going to be great. And then a year later, the studio closes or one of the partners leaves. And I I mean, I I don't even know the number of studios I have either been a part of or been aware of where it started with a partnership and then dissolved. I mean, definitely more than one hand. Um, probably close to two hands. So if you want to do a studio, that's great. Just be really careful who you're doing it with and is the other person on the same wavelength as you. And the number one most important thing, always, always, always have a written contract signed by both parties. So this is the most important tool you have to protect yourself. If something is not in writing, then it is open for interpretation. And if it's open for interpretation, you, the teacher, are likely going to be the one who gets hurt in the situation. So, um, you know, my background's in law and contracts. And so I'm really passionate about that because it's the only way to stay safe. And even then, unfortunately, not everything works out. Um gosh, let's see. I've had some really bad experiences uh with a studio before and um it, it just in many, many different ways and I'm just going to say this, you guys, you should never work for free. Ever. If you are a certified yoga teacher, some studios are going to say, "Oh yeah, well it's experience, it's exposure. You have to teach this many classes as an internship." and then you'll start to get paid. Or um, if studios don't wanna pay you an appropriate amount, like say you're teaching a workshop and they're like, oh, well, I'll just pay you the average, like the, um, the class rate for the workshop. So then say you're getting, say you get 40 bucks a class in the US. So you're getting paid $40 to teach a workshop that people are paying 50 or $60 for. That's not fair to the teacher. Workshops should be a split in the favor of the teacher. Um, But again, get it in writing. And once you've been burned a few times, you'll start to, (laughs) unfortunately, um, figure this stuff out. I know I worked for a studio, and um, in the US, the big conversation was always are you an independent contractor or an employee? And An independent contractor means you're in charge of your own taxes, your own invoicing, you handle all your own billing, and you can work wherever you want as a yoga teacher. As an employee, you work for a specific studio and you have more rights. Like your taxes are taken out, you have um, workers' comp if you were to get hurt on the job, but you also have more obligations. And so the last few years in the yoga industry Um, This has been a huge thing where a lot of studios are getting in trouble because they're asking independent contractors to do the same duties as an employee. Things like handle money, things like make sales, things like cleaning up, you know, in the studio space, things like, um, I mean, there's a whole list. I think there's like 27 things that the federal government has said constitute uh, an employee versus an independent contractor, And so many times it's preferable as a yoga teacher to be an employee than an independent contractor. And I know the studio that I was working at, um, we actually got all the teachers, we got emails from the state labor commission. And the labor commission was like, oh, we're doing an audit of the yoga studio you work at. Can you please answer this questionnaire, send us some information? And in my mind, I was like, yes, finally. Somebody's paying attention, and um, filled out the questionnaire, sent it in, and a little bit of time went by, and then I, I stayed in touch actually with the the individual auditor, sending him emails, following up, and finally I emailed him and I was like, hey, I'm just wondering, was there ever a determination from the investigation? And he said, oh yeah, a determination was made by July of whatever year. Uh, the studio needs to be in compliance with every teacher becoming a an employee rather than an independent contractor. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, July came and went. No information, nothing from the studio. A few more months went by. I emailed the auditor again, and I said, hey, so what happens if a studio doesn't comply with the ruling? And he said, well, um, you know, <laughs> not much like at some point we will find out and then there could be you know repercussions for back pay or back taxes and all of this stuff and I was so furious because um it had been ordered by a state agency and the studio was full aware their their attorneys were full aware and they still were cutting corners and trying to push it as long as possible and um you know Core Power Yoga has been in the news a lot for a lot of their shady practices, and um, there are some good things about it. And I do like a lot of the people I used to teach with, and but, I mean, there's been two class action lawsuits against core power yoga for the way they treat their yoga teachers and how illegal their practices are, their hiring practices, their paying practices, everything. And, you know, it's really discouraging when you see a brand new teacher who's like so excited and they can't wait to be teaching and they don't realize that they're being really taken advantage of. And then they downplay it, and they're like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Well, it might be fine for you right now, but the problem is then when there's a hundred teachers, a thousand teachers saying, it's fine, it's fine, it completely undermines the foundation of what every other teacher is trying to do, which is to raise the standard for yoga teachers and what we can charge, what we get paid so many yoga teachers are living hand-to-mouth. They're running around town teaching in a bunch of different studios, getting burnt out, not having time to take care of themselves or money to take care of themselves. And so when we look at the, the picture of that, of a, of a typical yoga teacher, and then we look at a very, very wealthy corporation, why the fuck are we saying, oh, it's fine, it's fine? No! Oh, my gosh. It's so backwards. And, again, David and Goliath, the people in positions of power who can hire really smart attorneys, are the ones driving the ship. And, um, you know, the attitude of that particular corporation is churn and burn. Churn and burn. You don't like it? Get out. hundred more lined up to take your spot. And I just, to me, it's a very gross business practice. But, oh, well, they keep opening one or two new studios a month. So there you go there something's happening for them um and as far as i know i i left but and moved to norway and was out of there but um i know they now the the teachers are employees uh but it just it was so amazing to be like yeah to look your manager in the eye and know that they know that they're screwing you is uh hard to get around. And and it's happened to me several different times in different studios. And you know, my belief is always, "Oh, people just don't know." <laughs> "Oh, my manager just didn't know that that was happening." Or in Norway, "Oh, the manager just doesn't know that they're being really unethical." And then when you find out, when I find out that in fact they knew the whole time along <laughs> what they were doing, uh, it drives just oh my gosh, it makes me feel a little crazy. Um, so we can do better. We can demand that the people around us do better. And you guys, if this means you have to lose a job, you have to walk away from a gross situation, do it. Because in that moment, you might feel lost. Like, oh my gosh, okay, what happens if I leave this job? Am I ever going to get another one? But you know what? There are people out there who are ethical in acting with integrity, and they will find you, they will want to hire you, they will want to give you a job. Uh, That was one of the big reasons when I started the Atman Yoga School, I talk about this a lot, I was so sick of seeing so much unethical, disgusting behavior in the yoga industry that I wanted to be an example of something different. And I wanted to feel good when I hired teachers and feel good when I interacted with my students and feel good that I know my intention is always the highest good. And of course, I'm still human and I make mistakes and, you know, I might drop the ball occasionally when it comes to returning an email or something like that. Sorry, guys, if that's you. Um, but my, my integrity is never in question. And I must say that feels really good. And so I have to be very careful when I'm entering partnerships and collaborations and picking places that I want to, that I'm proud to offer my teaching at and proud to offer the Atman Yoga School at. It's um, very hard, hard line for sure. And it's not all about money uh, for me. Money of course is very important to pay bills and keep everything running, but I wanna work with people who I can trust who I know are going to work just as hard as I will, and who want to be an example, who want to be a change in an industry that is very commercialized and capitalistic. So for you as a teacher, new, old, senior, whatever, um, I guess you just have to decide for yourself. But if you're not excited about the place that you're working, then look for a new job. Create a job for yourself. So this brings me to some other things happening. So those are some of my personal um, experiences. Also kind of a funny but not funny one. Uh, when I lived in Aspen, Colorado, there was a yoga teacher and uh, an old man at one of the local studio there, and he uh, had been accused of, of groping women in his class. And the newspapers had a headline, <laughs> Aspen Grabber, <laughs> talking about his court case going through and you know, it's, it, the headline was clever and funny, but it is just a, an indication of how systemic this is in small towns across not just the US, but across the world. And I don't know. So, when we talk about some of the stuff that's happened recently in the yoga world, um, you know, of course, we have to talk about Bikram. And everything that's happened with him in the last few years and being actually convicted of rape in the U.S. courts and being he was judged to or his judgment was to pay six million dollars to one of his victims. And then he fled. He hasn't paid it. He fled to New Mexico or to Mexico and is living off. Well, he's not living off the grid. He's still running teacher trainings, which is insanity to me. Insanity. Uh, there's a really great podcast, if you're interested. It's called 30 for 30. And it's a investigative journalism, I think it's six parts, all about Bikram. And some of the women who went to his training, some of the women who were his victims. And it's very well done. Highly recommend if you want to learn more about what happened there. And I don't even want to use the word scandal because it's not a scandal. It's criminal behavior. And it's disgusting and really unfortunate that it went on for so long. And the thing with Bikram, this brings me into a wider conversation, is how people are still practicing his style of yoga, still attending teacher trainings with him. His teacher trainings are like $10,000. It is baffling to me that somebody would pay that man $10,000 to learn his style of teaching yoga to then go out and try and get a job like you're a, you're a direct representation of him especially recently if you do a recent teacher training with him. And so that's like now what everybody says with all of the drama from the Ashtanga community in 2018 uh, from the me too movement um everybody says, well, I can separate the man from the practice. Can separate the man from the practice. That makes me want to puke in my mouth. Um, great, good for you. What do you want, a cookie? That is the biggest cop out I've ever heard. You are being so, I'm, in my opinion, just my opinion, and I understand this comment might upset some people, but in my opinion, when you say, I can separate the man from the practice, you basically are minimalizing the pain and trauma and suffering of the victims of that teacher, and you're saying it didn't affect me, so it doesn't matter. I'm good. I can still practice. I'm still satisfied. I'm still happy. And in my mind, that's such an egotistical standpoint. And great, I'm I'm super psyched that you're getting what you need. But what about accountability? What about um, saying, wow, wow what can I do to make this better? I enjoy practicing this style of yoga, and it really resonates with me, and I teach this style of yoga, but it's not okay what happened. And how can we as a community collectively come together to have honest and real dialogue about change? And change in a way so that we can hold future leaders accountable when something happens. And you know, the, the Yoga Alliance has gotten a lot of flack the last few years. People argue it's ineffective. It's just a registry. It's expensive. Why are people so worried about what Yoga Alliance thinks? There's a big boycott Yoga Alliance movement. Um, and I have a couple of problems with that, more to do with the fact that if you are, argue that teachers are going to – students are going to do the work to find a quality yoga teacher education with if the Yoga Alliance went away – I don't think that's accurate. Um, but anyways, that's a whole their conversation. So the Yoga Alliance is doing a standards for ethics that every yoga teacher registered with them, every studio, every teacher training has to agree to and sign. And yeah, of course, it's not like a final end-all, be-all, but it certainly is a step in the right direction. And I can really appreciate that. Because, again, I think so much of this just gets swept under the rug and people are like, well, okay, I guess it happens, but it's not really impacting me, so let it go. But if we have some way to hold authority figures more accountable and we make it easier for victims to share their stories and... If we destigmatize the shame that comes from these victims. And so many of these victims from Patabi Joyce, who he groped and molested and sexually abused for decades. Like this was not a secret. This was well known. Um, when they've come forward in 2018 and 2019, and so many people are just kind of turning a blind eye, like, oh, I never knew that. Oh, that's too bad. And some of the victims, There's a really great, um, well, two podcast episodes that I think were really amazing um, on Jay Brown's Yoga Talks podcast. He spoke with Keno McGregor, who I want to come back to. And then he spoke with Karen Rain, who was one of the senior teachers trained under uh, Patabi Joyce. And she said when she came forward and shared her stories, and she stopped practicing Ashtanga yoga many, many years ago after, you know, she'd hit the wall with the abuse from Patabi Joyce and she shared that she got so much backlash from other people in the Ashtanga community and I it made me so sad to hear and it's kind of like people close rank and it's very much driven by fear I get um that if your foundation for life is called into question it is is easy to become defensive and say, oh, no, 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 that woman's just crazy. Oh, that was an isolated event. Oh, that only happened once. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, she's embellishing it, making it bigger than it was. And that's where I get really concerned when people say, oh, I can separate the man from the practice because they're just poo-pooing, sliding off all of these other parts of the conversation that are so important to have if, big if, We ourselves want to be ethical and moral and just good, decent people. So, gosh, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm on a soapbox here. I am a little bit because it's, you know, when you run a yoga business and you see some of this stuff, um, on one hand, you want to be an advocate for social justice and for change. uh, But you also, there is a level of like, oh my gosh, if I speak out, this is just me speaking Jessica, If I speak up about some of the stuff that bothers me, even though I don't, I've never been a victim of sexual or physical abuse, Um, I've never met any of these teachers, so I really am a little removed, but they're also not my practices. So it's more of my commentary just in general about ethical behavior in a spiritual community. Um, Sometimes it is hard to be outspoken, and it is hard to take such a clear line stance, and... It can trigger people, and you just don't know what kind of response you might get. And so I've always been really careful about what I say publicly. And then, I don't know, I had something happen this week um, that I won't share, but it really uh, pushed a button in me, where I was like, oh my gosh, why are we not more outspoken about ethics? So that's why I uh, decided to record this episode. So thanks for hanging on and listening. (laughs) It's kind of heavy. Whew. Take a breath out. Um, yeah, so talking about what's happening in the Ashtanga community, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with the practice of Ashtanga. I don't. I do have a bit of a problem with how everything's been handled in the last year, two years, um, when it became very well known that Patabi Joyce had had molested and sexually abused students, and. You know, when something like that breaks or becomes common knowledge, everybody looks to the leaders in that community. And it was really interesting because it was just about that same time that there was also kind of another, like, this I will call a scandal. It wasn't anything criminal. Uh, the Aloe, Kino McGregor, Snar debate that came up in early 2018, and it was also right around that time that all the information about Patabi Joyce came out. And Kino McGregor is, uh, I think, a really polarizing figure. A lot of people love her. She seems very sweet and very open and genuine. Uh, but she is a very smart businesswoman, in my opinion. I don't know her. I've never met her. But I've I've watched what she's been doing. And um She also did a podcast episode with Jay Brown, Yoga Talk, and or Yoga Talks podcast. And in that episode, I thought Jay Brown did a good job, but then he kind of backed off a little bit. He said he was trying to to pin Kino down, be like, okay, well, where do you stand? You are like the darling of Ashtanga yoga, and you have all these videos, and you're the poster girl, and you have your the Miami um, Life Center, and you have all your workshops and trainings around the world, and a book, and Etc. And she, in my opinion, had a real kind of wishy-washy cop-out answer when Jay Brown was trying to pin her down, and she was just like, "Same thing. Well, I can separate the man from the practice. He gave me so much in my life, and the practice has given me so much." And and I was, my jaw literally dropped when I heard her worming out of responsibility for her guru. And especially the fact that she's a woman, a young woman, youngish. And so many people in the yoga community that have been hurt are women. And so somebody who's in a position of leadership, who has the power to shift the narrative of this conversation and has a wide platform to do that, literally just was like, well, I don't agree with what he did. It's not right. I feel bad for his victims, but dot, 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 but that is so dismissive again, like I just said, or even her, her husband, Tim Feldman on, on their website, he's has a written apology saying that he never knew about any of the abuse. He never saw any of the abuse and saying that he perhaps should have done better to become aware when people started coming forward with, uh, claims about the abuse and you know I'm not sure I have the exact answer of what I think they should do differently but I don't know maybe not transferring allegiance to Sharath Joyce in such an obvious way um if Patabi Joyce was their guru then how all of a sudden is it now Sharath Joyce and calling him the highest names of respect and veneration uh when he's had some, some stories circulating about him also, um, I guess now they say, oh, it's unequivocal in the Ashtanga community. There is, you know, sexual abuse of any form is not tolerated. Bad assists are not tolerated. And that's great. So they are trying to take some action to change forward. But I just thought it was a really disappointing response from Kino McGregor in regards to protecting other women in the yoga community and to just not take a stronger stance. But also, you can understand that there is a little bit of a monetary incentive. She is the poster girl. She is one of the few authorized teachers uh, who didn't lose her authorization in 2018, uh, who was running teacher trainings outside of the Shala in Mysore. And so, you know, I think they are understanding Kino McGregor's draw from a financial standpoint and pushing Ashtanga forward into... The younger generations and attracting the younger generations. And also talking about her conflict with Aloe yoga when aloe bought um Cody, the Cody app. And then all of a sudden Kina McGregor said that she didn't want her information or her classes on the new Aloe app because she disagreed with their stance on skinny and fat women. And she really just wanted to be let out of the contract so that she could post her videos on her new platform, Omstar, which is purely financial motivation. And if she had said, those videos I'll take down and I will not repost uh, as, a, as a way to show solidarity for my argument that I disagree with Allo's stance on uh, bigger bodies, then, then I would have been like, okay, cool, no problem. You're walking the talk. You're standing by it. Create new content for Omstar." But as far as I'm aware, that's not what happened. So I don't, you know, call a spade what it is. If you're doing it for a financial reason, fine. We live in a capitalistic society. Great. Shake your moneymaker. I mean, I read an article where the value of what she had gotten from Kodiap was like half a million dollars, $500,000 from her online videos. That is not chump change. So lot of information here the takeaway is how can we do better and how do we present ourselves in a way that's trustworthy that's with integrity and where people aren't questioning our motives so that's us and our end keeping our side of the street clean Uh, To new teachers, I want to say when you're negotiating your payment or your salary or you're going to host a workshop or you're going to do a course or you're going to do a training, whatever it is, make sure that you have an honest conversation, as difficult as it is, force yourself. Have an honest conversation with the studio owner, the retreat center, whatever it is. Make sure you get everything in writing, and the contract has to be signed by both parties in order for it to be enforceable. So make sure that both parties sign it, that you have a copy of it, and that in your contract it's very clear who's doing what. So say it's a workshop, for example. So the studio is providing the space, they're doing the cleanup, and hopefully they're doing some marketing. They may or may not be collecting registration. That's something you would decide. For the teacher, you're providing the curriculum, you're teaching it, and you're doing marketing, and also maybe collecting registration. So based on the split of duties, who's doing what, that's where you would decide the profit split. So who gets what percentage? Is it 70-40, or I'm sorry, 70-30, 60-40? That just depends on what you decide. Anything is negotiable, but if you don't have it in writing, then it doesn't matter because then they can backtrack and say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we agreed. We agreed on something else. And you as a new teacher are going to feel too insecure, perhaps, to stand up for yourself and be like, "Mm, actually, that's not quite what we agreed on. And so my advice would be, first of all, get everything in writing with a contract and be willing to walk away from a job that you don't feel good about, that you don't feel like you're getting adequately um, paid for. If you are getting paid a very low amount and the studio is taking in a huge amount of money, then that's not fair. Uh, Blaze your own path. Create something for yourself, where you feel good, where you feel supported, where you feel seen. And that's when things start to take off. And when all of a sudden there's like this support from this energetic support that allows you to grow your career in a way you want to, without feeling stuck, without feeling like you're in a box, like, oh my God, I have to do this. I have to take this job. Uh, it's It's a really dangerous game, and it's a myth that a lot of people are perpetuating within the yoga community. Um, I, yeah, makes me sad a little bit, but also hopeful because when we have these types of conversations and, um, you know, putting this out there, you guys is pretty big leap of faith for me. Um, so I hope that those of you listening feel, feel my intention and feel that, the reason I want to do this is to share and so that other people can learn from my experiences and maybe not make the same mistakes that I've made. Uh, I've, I've entered into some really poor partnership choices in the past um, that have really had a pretty drastic financial impact on my well-being. Um, I'm not. I haven't shared any of those stories, but they're there. And so just getting smarter and smarter and smarter. This is why, too, as a teacher, it's so important to be networking. Be part of Facebook forums. Go to local events. Go to other teachers' classes. Because then you start to hear, like, ooh, okay, who's, where's a good studio to teach? Who is a good studio manager? Who pays well for the retreats? Who does X, Y, and Z? And then you can kind of find your way into the job that you want. And it's not always um, the job you think. Sometimes, like, the job where it was like, oh, it's so exciting, that's so cool, and I wish I had that job, turns out to be the shittiest job of all. So don't let perceptions fool you. So, yeah, I guess that's where I'm going to leave it. Time to get off my soapbox and go teach some yoga. So, Yeah. I hope you all have a great day. And if anyone has any questions about this, you're welcome to send me an email. Um, I always especially feel really protective of teachers that I have trained, um, teachers that I've done mentorships with, and just try to open everybody's eyes to this a little bit more uh, because we don't know what we don't know. But now hopefully you know a little bit more. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have an awesome day an awesome week. And that's it. That's all.